I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. And my title this morning is Activating the Body of Christ. Over the last few Sundays, we've been getting busy with God's dream. And you may say that's not appropriate language to talk about God, but I do believe that God dreams. He is the best imaginer possible. In fact, the Bible tells us that before anything was created, when God existed in all his self-sufficient glory, perfectly self-sufficient, perfectly content, no needs within himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, living in glorious unity, God conceived a plan. We can say he dreamed. He dreamed about creating a physical universe, this cosmos in which we live, and not at the heart of it, but at a very important uh, part of it, is planet Earth. And he dreamed of populating planet Earth with a species of God's creation known as Homo sapiens, us, humanity. And he dreamed of making us in his image that we might be able to reflect his glory into this world and indeed beyond that to be shining stars in his universe. And at the heart of this was his desire to create a people who would walk with him, share with him, work with him, talk with him, fellowship with him, and therefore he gave us the capacities by which that was possible. We all know that that, that plan was marred marred by sin, and therefore that separation came in, one might argue that might have been the end of it. God said, well, that dream didn't work. But God is not like that. He always finishes what he starts. He doesn't change halfway. Aren't you glad that he thinks in the same way about you? That he didn't say, oh, do you know, when I took you on, I didn't know you were going to be so difficult, so I'm going to leave you on one side. No, the Bible says, he that has begun a good work in us will carry it on to completion right until and including the day of Jesus Christ. And so with this great plan to populate earth with a, with a, with a whole population of people, a very big family of people loving him, he has never never forsaken that plan, and, and just as soon as it appeared to go wrong, God stepped in with the promise of the gospel, the gospel of salvation, the gospel of redemption, and even that great commission which he gave to those first human beings on this planet when he said, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That plan was never abandoned, and in fact, it has come back at a higher level, and we see it in the Great Commission when Jesus says, in, uh, go and make disciples of all nations. So God's plan A remains plan A, and in an amazing way, he's brought us into that plan to be part of his body, which needs to be activated by the Holy Spirit. So let's read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and onwards. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always 
for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. I want to ask you a question. What happens when the Spirit comes? That question was directed a little over 100 years ago to a small Bible school over Christmas, December 1900. And this was their assignment over Christmas. Go away and do a Bible study. What happens when the Spirit comes? These people were thirsty for a new experience of God, for a dimension of God that apparently, in many ways, had been missing from the day of Pentecost. That's not exactly true because God is always blessed and uh, His people over the centuries and there have been times of the renewal in the Holy Spirit with the gifts of the Spirit being manifested at certain times in church history. But at this point, people were hungry and thirsty for that. And after Christmas, they came back on January the 1st to give the fruit of their Bible study. And this was their conclusion. Many things happen when the Spirit comes, but the book of Acts particularly show us that one thing in particular seems to be recurring. They speak with new tongues. And it seems as if God had, with the birth of a new era of the Holy Spirit, these last days, which are the age of the Holy Spirit, Christ is no longer with us physically but with us by his Holy Spirit. And from the day of Pentecost onwards, when the Holy Spirit comes, it appears that God has given a new form of prophetic speech to show that there is a new age of God's Spirit. But what is really at the heart of it? Is it one unusual gift? Or is it the purpose behind it all? Surely the Holy Spirit is given to reveal Christ We know that. That is consistent in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit's ministry, chief of of, of his operations, is to spotlight Jesus. It's rather like when you see a building illuminated. And there must be quite a comprehensive system of illumination of lights and spotlights and colors. And these days you can even project moving scenes on buildings. When you look at that, you may be conscious that there is a spotlight there. But your attention goes to the building. So the Holy Spirit, when he spotlights Jesus, he doesn't draw attention to himself. He says, don't look at me, look at Jesus. My job is to spotlight Jesus. My job is to reveal Christ to you. My job is to bring the presence of Christ to you. My job is to make Jesus real for you. So when you walk in the Spirit, you're walking in fellowship with Christ. We can also see that a very strong theme uh, in the coming of the Holy Spirit is that he empowers us. He empowers us for mission. He empowers us for service. He qualifies us to be an active part of the body of Christ, not just as individuals, but together that we might work for him out there in the world, represent him. The highest form of understanding of church is that we as the body of Christ are his agent in the world, and we represent him everywhere. So all these things hinge on something that I want to focus on today, and that is the spiritual animation and the spiritual activation of the body of Christ. We can think of somebody who is in the resus center in an emergency ward at hospital. Now, doctors, don't hold me too much to detail here because anyway, I'm just preaching now. I'm not giving a scientific lecture. But this is kind of how it goes, all right? Somebody uh, is, is lying on the resuscitation bed and their heart has stopped. They're not breathing. And, and then they get busy. They do all kinds of things. Electric shock treatment to the heart. 
They might give CPR, and we should all be trained in this because you never know how we can save a life. As a, a rescue diver, I can do this. Uh, so if you need it, I can do it, but I'll throw, have to throw you in the water first and then bring, bring you out because that, that's, that's my training. But then after something happens, and, and you see it, we see it most commonly on television programs, there's a flat line, and then suddenly there is the sign of a heartbeat, and we can say that body has been reanimated. In a way, they were dead before, and now they've kind of come back to life. They've been resuscitated. And there is in the Bible uh, a classical example of resuscitation. Actually, it's, it's more like suscitation. Because when Adam was first created by God, he was molded and shaped. The Hebrew word implies molding and shaping, forming, rather than just bringing together dust particles. So I suggest it was out of clay. God molded Adam and fashioned him. And there he was, perfectly formed. Michelangelo, eat your heart out. Nobody could sculpt it better than God. But there Adam lay a clay model a clay sculptor lying there, only distinguishable from the clay from which he was made by the shape and fashioning of God's beautiful creative hand. But he was inanimate, lifeless. But God in his great wisdom and glory, the Bible describes it in language we can understand, God bent down from heaven and placed his nostrils next to the nostrils of Adam and blew the ruach of God, God's wind, God's breath, God's spirit, and life entered Adam. And there he rose up from the clay, fully living, breathing. The Bible, Hebrew word is nefesh, higher, a living soul, a living, breathing human being, but not just a living, breathing human being, but the first living, breathing, spirit-filled human being. Now, I want to take that and use it as an illustration of what God does to the church of Jesus Christ. In a very real way, on the day of Pentecost, God breathed that same breath, the breath of his life, into another body. Not a totally inanimate body, of course, the disciples were living, breathing uh, followers of Christ. But something happened to mark a new experience of life, life in the Holy Spirit. And as well as all the wind blowing and the, and the tongues of fire settling on people's head and the building shaking and everything else that might have happened, and including the speaking in tongues, what really it was about was God coming and presencing himself in the body of the church church and animating it and activating it. And that process has continued right till this very present day. The immediate effects of the Spirit are interesting. They're fascinating. On the day of Pentecost, it looked like they were drunk. And maybe the Apostle Paul has this in mind when he describes in Ephesians chapter 5 the kind of negative example. Don't be drunk with wine, but be drunk on the Holy Spirit. That's almost what he's saying except it's a little more developed than that, because here it's not a picture of somebody that has had one drink over the limit, it's been pulled over by the police and being breathalyzed. This is somebody who is habitually drunk. This is a picture of people who are addicted to alcohol. Um, and you know, I began my ministry working in drug and alcohol rehabilitation. It was a really good 
training program for my own life. And to see how young men's lives were, had been ruined by chronic addiction to alcohol and to drugs. And the people we're dealing with, many of them would be in their early 20s, and would be chronic alcoholics, which means they'd been addicted from teenagers. And one thing I learned was when that alcohol addiction or drug addiction takes hold of your life, it affects everything. It affects how you think, it affects your health, it affects your body, it affects your relationships, it affects your finances. Absolutely everything is controlled, even dominated by that addiction to alcohol. And it seems the Apostle Paul is saying, be like that, but not with respect to wine or alcohol or any other form of drug. Be like that with respect to the Holy Spirit. In other words, you must be so filled with the Holy Spirit that your life is taken over. We're going to come back and focus on some of the immediate effects, but I need to remind you that the Apostle Paul doesn't just stop at the visible and vocal manifestations of the Spirit that we're going to focus on today. He's talking about something bigger than that. He's talking about how the Holy Spirit will affect you if you surrender to Him in your daily life. He goes on to talk about life in the Spirit, life dominated by the Spirit, what it looks like in, in marriage, what it looks like in the home, what it looks like in the workplace, and also what it looks like in the marketplace. Because when he gets to Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about taking our stand against principalities and powers. And that means he expects us to stand for him in the midst of an alien environment, in a society that is, that is influenced by other forms of, of control, demonic control, principalities and powers. And he says, I want you to take your stand clothed in the armor of God, filled with the Spirit, and live for me, and stand for me, and overcome in my name, in your workplace, your, your home, your college, your education, even to the point of influencing the whole of society. That is what it means to be part of a Spirit-filled church. But let's have a look at some of those initial things. First of all, we need to know that uh, life in Christ and life in the Spirit equate to practically the same thing. We can speak about our life as being in Christ, living in Christ, and Christ living in me, and that expresses a very real truth. But another way of saying the same thing is that we live in the Spirit, and the Spirit lives in us. And so we should be truly spirit-filled believers and understand what it is to walk in the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, and allow the Holy Spirit constantly to take more and more on in our, uh, in our lives. So uh, how does it work? So when we go back to Ephesians chapter 5, we see that he says, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I think there's another reference here to the day of Pentecost because they were accused of being drunk, weren't they? And the Bible says that they were filled with the Spirit, they began to speak with tongues, and, and they were praising God and glorifying God. But people who were gathered for that Feast of Pentecost from all around the, the Roman Empire, Jews from the Diaspora, heard them speaking in their own local dialects. And they said, this is amazing. What's happening here? And, uh, but others, the Bible says, mocked and said, oh, these are drunk. And Peter begins, imagine this, the first fully-fledged Christian sermon, the first preaching, the first official preaching 
of the church began like this. No, we're not drunk. The pubs aren't open yet. That's astonishing how far we have moved. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when was preaching on this, said, when was you last being accused of being drunk uh, uh, in, in, in a church service or in your life as a Christian? I mean, not drunk on alcohol. Don't tell me about that. Don't tell me about that. Been drunk on the Holy Spirit. And so this tells us that when the Spirit comes, there are some very visible effects, visible effects. And sometimes these vary. It's not mandatory that you have to look like a drunken person just to prove the Holy Spirit's here. No. We don't know sometimes how the Holy Spirit will, will show himself. But there are showings of the Spirit that go beyond the regular pattern of church life. And we need to get back to that, to be open to whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. Because he, being the sovereign Lord, can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and through whom he wants. And that's the hardest part. He uses some very strange people these days. But God is sovereign, and God is wonderful, and God is powerful, and we must be open to how he works and how he operates. But we're not focusing so much on the visible. We want to look at the vocal. Time and time again in Scripture, when the Spirit comes, there is a vocal release, a prophetic release. Something happens. Jesus said, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever you're full of will affect how you speak. And our, our speaking, spiritual talk, is one genuine spiritual talk, is one of the key characteristics of the Holy Spirit. He loosens our tongue, and I'll explain how I think it works in, in a moment. But the vocal effects, what does it say? Filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another. I'm going to come back to that point. Let me underline it for now. Speaking to one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, there's a wonderful sermon to be preached here about our worship. It's interesting that he talks about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms are most likely, the early church did use the psalms as a hymn book, and that's, that's fantastic, and hymns perhaps were hymns that were constructed, and, and biblical truth and Christian experience was put into words set to music, hymns rather like we do today. In fact, there is some evidence in the New Testament itself that there are a number of hymns hidden there. Paul seems to be quoting them. One of them, great is the mystery of godliness, God manifested in the flesh. This, scholars tell us, is likely to be quoting from an, a hymn which was clearly given by the Spirit for the early church. Another one in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal to God. That scholars tell us is very likely to be a hymn that they were singing. So thank God for the hymn writers and the songwriters. But let's not forget the old hymn writers, not just the new modern ones. Some of those old hymns, we've got to resurrect them. Let's have some reanimation of some old hymns. Thank you very much. Amen. Now I've preached to the choir. Johnny Miller's album, the latest one, I think it's your only one, but never mind, the latest one, that sounds good. And get it uh, right from the very first song. All the way through, he has skillfully chosen words and truths from Scripture and given us the opportunity to turn those back to God in praise and worship and to encourage one another. We thank God for all of this. And that can be the overflow of the Spirit of God in our lives. A, a church's worship life is in many ways a litmus test to the level of their experience in the Holy Spirit. 
Then he speaks also about spiritual songs. Spiritual songs may be songs which are more directly inspired and spontaneous by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we know those experiences from time to time. Then he goes on to talk about giving thanks always. Now that's hard enough before we even finish the clause. Giving thanks always. Are you an always thanking God person? Ah, okay, we're not so sure. Let's read on because it gets tougher. Giving thanks to God for all things. This is the only time in the Bible where that is exactly expressed. Other places say giving God thanks in all things. And that's hard enough to say in all circumstances I'm going to be thankful. But Paul here, because he's talking about spirit-filled people whose minds are saturated with the revelation of God, who are flowing in the Holy Spirit, who are walking close to Jesus, we can also thank God for all things, even the bad things that happen. I'm not pretending this is easy. I really am not pretending this is easy, but I'm telling you the Spirit of God will direct us towards thanking God for all things. And this, this means that we have a trust in God that He is in charge of everything. That's the first thing. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good. And that's amazing. And at times when we're going through tough times and we don't feel like praising God and certainly finding no good reason at all to thank God for that bad thing that happened. Because when you're thanking God, you're not pretending that it's a good thing. It is a bad thing. But we know that at times the devil will, allow, will bring stuff into our lives and God will allow it. But the devil brings it. It doesn't come from him. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. God is not the troublemaker. The devil is the troublemaker. He's the adversary. So don't blame God. But he does allow it. The devil does it, but God does allow it. But we can say perhaps with Joseph, what the devil intended for evil, God intended for good. God intended for good. Job was able to recognize this. He would not curse God. He said, I, I accept good things that come, and I praise God when the good things happen, but when the bad things happen, I know that God has not abandoned me. So it's not just faith in saying, God is going terrible, but you haven't abandoned me. I'm not measuring your love by the, by the positivity of my circumstances. I know that whether it's good or bad, God loves me anyway, and we know there is a purpose beyond this. We know that God is working something. And when you're going through a tough time and you say, God, I thank you for what is happening, people will think you're crazy. And if we try to counsel people to do that, they'll think that we are cruel. But the truth is, when you see the big picture and start praising God during that time of difficulty and even thanking God for the circumstance, you are making a faith statement that God will honor in your experience. And what's that faith statement? The faith, go ahead, give him praise. <clears throat> What's that faith statement? Here it is. According to Romans 28, 828, let me paraphrase or to give you the meaning. What this means is that God has promised never 
to allow anything to come into your life, anything at all, other than that it will be for His glory and will work for your ultimate good. That's an incredible faith statement. And you can rejoice if you really believe that you can rejoice. And I, I know in my experiences at times, and we've gone through great personal tragedy in our, in our, in our family, and it was so wonderful, a reminder of R.T. being here, R.T. preached at the funeral of, of Laura, who died at 16 years of age, having been born normal, but been, uh, through medical negligence, had terrible brain damage, and all her life, she was 24-hour care. And it was very hard, I'm telling you, to say thank you, Jesus, for this. Very hard. I don't, know, I don't know if I actually ever achieved it. I don't know. But I tried my best to, not, to continue to trust God and to know that God was working out His purpose. But I can truly say, when I look back, to say, do you know, I found God in those days in a way that I would never have found Him if those days hadn't come upon me. Amen? And I'm saying that, and I'm being really honest when I say that. And so, it's a big faith statement, but when you are full of the Holy Spirit, your heart will be directed to the purpose behind stuff. You will see Jesus. You will see Jesus at work in everything, even in your negative circumstances, even in the things that go wrong, and, and even in the things that we bring upon ourselves. God is so wonderful in His restoration and in His redemption that when we finally come back to God and are restored, we find that He gives us everything that we lost and more beside. I believe in redemption, but I believe in a phrase called more than redemption. When Adam sinned, he lost everything, but when Christ restored it, God gave it all back and then some. God is never, ever going to let you miss out. If you praise Him, live for Him, work for Him, serve Him, and believe Him, you will find that it all works out, not just in the end, but all the way through, God's presence is amazing. So when we keep our joy in tough times, we are thanking God, thanking God for everything. I know it's tough, but it's Bible, and God will give us the strength. Amen. Amen. But He hasn't finished yet. He comes to this final phrase here, which to me seems completely out of context. I, for a long time, had no idea why the Apostle Paul threw this in. Maybe, you know, he was on a roll, so he throws in something that is hard to take, just in the middle and people are happy, so we'll just throw this one in. Like preachers who tell you a joke, and you're laughing, and when you're laughing, you relax, and then they hit you with the Word of God, and you think, uh-oh, now I know why I was set up. But the Apostle Paul isn't setting anybody up. Here is a flow of thought. When we look at it, I'll explain how I see it in a moment. But here it is. He talks about being filled with the Spirit. And we can say charismatic, hallelujah. We can clap our hands to speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We can struggle with giving thanks for all things. But when it comes to submitting to one another in the fear of God, what has that got to do with spirit-filled living, this submission to one another. Now, I could speak about the character of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like water. He always finds the lowest place. I could talk about Jesus and his humility, talk about Jesus and his teaching about how we become great in the kingdom of God by humbling ourselves and serving one another. We can talk about the one who stooped to the cross to conquer all things. 
We can talk about the one who went low to, in order to be exalted high. The only way up is down in the kingdom of God. I can speak about all of those things, and I'm sure they're here in the text. But one time when I was really struggling, I said, Lord, show me how this all works together because it looks as if Paul is just plucking ideas out from the air. How does it work together? And then suddenly, I got it. I got it. Let me explain it to you. It's a bit like this. We're gathering together as believers to honor, praise God, and something happens. Something wonderful happens. The Spirit comes. And when the Spirit comes, everything changes. We're out of ordinary church life into something extraordinary. We're out of just the natural dimension and we're lifted up to see things spiritually that we're, we're incapable of seeing a moment ago. And what are we seeing? Who are we seeing? Now, come on, this is Sunday service, so the answer is, who are we seeing? The answer is Jesus. Well done. When the Spirit comes, the first thing He does is reveal Christ. And that's the glory of it all. When the Spirit is coming and moving and manifesting Himself, we get, as it were, a vision of Jesus. And I imagine people gather together, because this is not just a private and personal individual experience. This is corporate. All these commands, be filled with the Spirit, are written in the plural. We have to get away from the individualism, me, myself, my prayer language, and my prayer closet, and my job at work. We have to understand that God has called us to be part of his body, and this community of God's people is a spirit-filled community. We're gathering together, and we're beginning to speak to one another. Did you see that? Speaking to one another. So what are we saying? Spirit comes, Jesus is manifested, we're praising him, and we start to speak to one and say, oh, look at that, do you see? I see, do you see? Oh, isn't he wonderful? Yes, he's wonderful. Oh, he's amazing. I never knew it could be as good as this. Neither did I. This is amazing. That's the kind of conversation. We're speaking to one another. Amen? But then the mood changes, and it will change with every one of us. The deeper we go with God, there will be a mood change. Why? Because the purpose of the Spirit in revealing Christ is that we should be changed and become like Him. 2 Corinthians 3.16 But we with all unveiled face, we behold as it were the glory of the Lord. We are being changed, transformed from glory to glory by the Lord who is the Spirit. Amazing. So when we see Christ, the purpose of the revelation of Christ is that we should become like Him. And this is how change occurs. If there's an issue in your life, stop looking at yourself. If you're struggling with something, stop examining it. Look at Christ. John Wesley said, I never look at myself unless I've looked ten times at Jesus. But somehow when we look at Jesus, we see what we should be. And we see his glory, and it's so attractive, attractive. And it's not just what we should be. When we see him, we, we want to be like him. We're drawn to that because we're born for this. 
We were created that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what salvation is all about, that we should become like Him. And that process of transformation, which we call sanctification, sounds like a technical word. It's not really so technical. It just means that day by day, by the Spirit, as we yield to Him and follow Him and obey Him, we are becoming more and more like Him today. We should be more like Him than we were yesterday. Amen. And that process continues throughout our life until the very end. The Bible says, when we see him, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That final transformation into the glorious image of Christ will happen when we see him face to face on that day. Hallelujah. There's only one way to become like Christ, and that is to focus on him. And when that happens, we look at him, and we desire him, and we want to be like him. And so here's how the conversation goes. Isn't he wonderful? Yes, he is. Isn't he amazing? Yes, he is. Oh, I, I, I really want to be like him. Yes, so do I. I want to be like him. But oh, I am so unlike him. And at that moment, we could begin to get a bit depressed it's bad enough when we compare ourselves with other people. Well, you know, I hear Brother So-and-so gets up at 6 a.m. every morning, and he reads 27 chapters of the Bible. <laughs> oh, how many do you read? Well, actually, I've missed it out for the last week. <gasps> Shame on you. Why can't you be more like Brother So-and-so? Well, it's bad enough, and we should never compare ourselves with ourselves. Compare ourselves with Christ. Because not only is he the real standard, he has the attractional power to transform us into his image. But there can be a moment of depression, and it's like, oh, no. I want to so be like him, but I can't. I, there's so much in me. Really? Yeah, in me as well. You're, yeah, this is terrible. And then somebody has a bright idea. This is behind the text. This is what it's all about. The bright idea is this. <gasps> Will you help me? Help me to be like Jesus. That's a great idea. I'll help you and you help me. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And this is what church life is all about. That's why more than these Wonderful Sunday gatherings, and for me, Sunday services are like the icing on the cake, and you can have cream and frosting and cherries and strawberries and everything. I wonder if anybody's hearing me now, <laughs> getting the hint. We said goodbye to Esteban this week. He's now traveling to, to Argentina, and uh, Ron Salamat, we had a bit of a staff celebration, and they brought this red velvet cake. Has anybody heard of that? Well, I'd never heard of it, seen it, but I'm going to see much more of it, that's for sure. <laughs> now, I love the frosting, and I love this, but it's the cake. Now, Sundays is the icing on the cake. It's not the cake. Very significant things happen on a Sunday. One of them is the public preaching of the Word of God. Amen? So when I'm preaching to you the Word of God, you're listening to me. Yeah, thank you. And you're being changed because the Word of God is shaping you as you receive it and as you apply it. That's great. 
And that's wonderful, and there can be no substitute for that. But the real work of discipleship is more than Sunday preaching. It's you taking that word together, and we establish the cell group structure as a way of doing this. You meet together, and you say, how does that word work out in my life? And help me, how, how have you managed to grasp hold of that? Like when I said earlier about difficult and painful experiences, I could have given the whole sermon over to sharing my testimony, brought Amanda here as well, and that would have made a good preaching time, really would, all right? But it's not just us, what about you? You could say, do you know what, when, when Colin was saying that on Sunday, it reminded me of the time when this happened to me. And that happened to me. And do you know I had I struggled and then they could testify as to how it worked. Or maybe somebody in your cell meeting will say, I don't understand it. How could Pastor Colin say that we should praise God for everything and give thanks for everything? It's ridiculous. It's cruel. It's ridiculous to even suggest it. And the cell might say, well, what are you going through then? You're finding it difficult. And at that time, the word that I preached in this way, which I don't have time to break down and minister to you individually, can happen in the cells. And that's when you are submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And you know what that submission is? It's not to people, but it's to Christ. When I recognize Christ in you, I'm going to receive what you have to say to me. You may say, well, you, aren't you, aren't you the, the senior minister? I'm, well, no, what, what, you know what the senior minister means? You know, minister means servant. It means I've got to work harder than the rest of you. That's what it means. It's not about position, but it's about God's spirit in your life. And if God's spirit is in you, and as we shall see in a moment, if God's word also dwells in you, it will come to that, then you are capable of ministering to one another. In the Bible, there are about 45 passages in which uh, we, ca- we call them the one-anothering passages. What you are to do to one another, love one another, care for one another, encourage one another, confront one another, counsel one another, help one another, serve one another, provoke one another to love. All these things are the one-anothering passages. And you could do some of them today. Hope you, you come in with a one-anothering m- mentality. I'm not talking about mothering over smothering. I'm talking about one-anothering. I'm not talking about interfering. Can you, can you, can you catch me when I'm speaking so fast? You can catch me? All right? So it's not about interfering. It's about genuinely making a connection. When the Christ that's in you connects with the Christ in me, and we work together and share together, there's a flow of power. There is an expression of Christ in the midst. And this happens right down at membership level. At the end of the service, the stewards are going to hand out a form in which you can make inquiries concerning our cell ministry. And for everyone who completes a form, when you get the form, you will get this book, Why Cells? And in it, I have seven principles, seven reasons why we have organized our church into cells. And the last one is one anothering. It's the only context in which we can fulfill the commands of the New Testament and how we to care for one another and love one another and teach one another, and admonish one another. But I want to show you something. You know, uh, we have three books, three New Testament epistles of Paul, which we call the prison epistles, okay? Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And Bible scholars tell us that it's highly likely that these three epistles were written when Paul was in prison, and they're written, therefore, more or less at the same time, and, and, and there is a lot of commonalities between them and a lot of kind of parallels because he was ministering in his letters at the same time with a lot of the same thoughts in his mind. 
And we see this clearly when we compare Ephesians 5 with Colossians 3. Ephesians 5 compared with Colossians 3, particularly verse 16. Now, with Ephesians 5 still in our minds, let me read Colossians 3.16. I want to see if you can spot the similarities and spot an apparent difference. Okay? Here we go. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Did you, did you spot the similarities? In, in um, Ephesians, he's talking about being filled with the Spirit, which produces these visible and verbal effects. But in Colossians, he's talking about being filled with the Word, the Word of Christ dwelling in you richly. The person who's just recently come to Christ that I've been praying for for eight years, he is reading the Bible and he says, Colin, it's life. Where have I been all this time? It's life. He gets up early in the morning. I won't tell you how early because I don't want to depress you. Um, and, and he reads his Bible, and I've given him the English Standard Bible, and he loves it. And there's a student version. He's reading all the references, and he says, it's just wonderful. It, and he's drawing life from it. So it's not just reading your Bible or learning your theology. It's about letting this take over your life being internalized, because God's word is living. And if you receive God's word, it is living and active in you. It is working in you in much the same way that the spirit is working in you. And this is not a coincidence, it's a marriage. Artie Kendall, I said, I'm gonna make reference to a lot of stuff that we've worked on together, you've written about, and we've discussed together, and this is one of the things, the relationship between the word and the spirit. Today, there is a scandalous divorce happening in our midst. It's the divorce of the word from the spirit. But I say what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. We should be as much word Christians as we are spirit Christians because the spirit always works with the word and the word always works with the spirit. So don't just think about speaking in tongues and enjoying all the physical and visible effects and the emotional things. It's wonderful. When the Spirit comes, we are always, there's, a, there's a, a change in our emotions. It happened yesterday when we brought all the workers together of the church. We prayed for them. The Spirit of God came. It was amazing. And people were experiencing all kinds of effects of the Spirit. But the most the key thing was the joy and the peace that came. Wonderful. But it's not just about our emotional experiences, as wonderful as they are. It's about getting to grips with God and His Word and bringing His Word to work in our lives and let it dwell richly. And that, what that means is then you will never be short of a blessing to pass on to somebody else. Make yourselves real Bible students. There's something that I have a campaign against, and that is biblical illiteracy. Biblical illiteracy. In other words, we just don't know our Bibles, or we turn to our Bibles just because we're feeling low and it makes us feel good, and that's good. Please continue to do that, but get to grips with it. And over these next six months, RT, when he expounds the Bible, I don't know anybody better he, he doesn't just give you the cream, doesn't just give you the fruit, but he allows you to see how he's handling the word of God so that we know that whatever is said is traced back to the revelation of God's word. And I know he would say this, I say it, in fact, all us preachers say it, if we say it and it's not in here, don't believe us. 
It's got to be here. Check it out for yourselves. Become, have a desire, have a hunger for the Word of God. Because the more you advance in the life of the Spirit, you must equally advance in life in the Word. And the Word of life in you. And that's what we do in the cells. We equip people. We encourage people. We teach people. We have a kind of preaching curriculum, which is about 18 months uh, spanned out. And we're, at the moment, we are focusing on the providence of God. That's why some of these titles are coming up. But we're going to translate those talks into stuff that you can look at in the cells. So over your life, I wish we could squeeze it into a year. But we have to be selective anyway to get a curriculum going for 18 months. But over the next 18 months, you will, through the cell teaching ministry, we will cover major biblical doctrines about major beliefs major practices, and major values, Christian values, Christian beliefs, Christian practices, Christian values, and it will be systematic, broken down to exactly where you are in your life so that we can build one another up in the things of God, and we will fulfill our membership of the body of Christ, and by the Spirit and the Word, we are activated. The body of Christ is energized animated, activated. But when we have done all of that to each other, we've only just prepared ourselves for the real task. It's not just about building one another up. It is equipping one another, building one another up that we might take our place in the marketplace as the body of Christ reflecting his glory into this world. That's the real purpose. God's purpose is to reach the world through his church, through his body, spirit-filled communities of people, loving God, serving one another, and reaching out to the community, letting the world know that Jesus Christ is alive and well, and he's living in his body by the Holy Spirit. And that work will continue until, to change the metaphor as the Bible uses too, not just body, but also bride, until the bride is completed, every spot and wrinkle, every bit of immaturity, every bit of spiritual old age removed, and when the one who gave his life for the church, his bride, has sanctified her to himself and removed and brought her to brilliant, glorious perfection in him, then the greatest marriage service that has ever taken place, even bigger than Gabriel's wedding, even bigger than Christian's wedding, and even bigger than my daughter's wedding later on this year, is the glorious... <laughs> Let me finish. <laughs> is the glorious coming together of Jesus and his church. That's why we must be church people I'm not just talking about traditional attenders. I'm talking about having a passion for Christ's church and becoming living, active members, being activated. And through the cell structure, it's only a structure, but through the cell structure, we can ensure that every one of you is being discipled and being trained to be a disciple maker. That this great dream will be fulfilled. To God be all the glory in the church through Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. amen.